Welcome to a new episode of Horror in the Margins, where indie horror reigns supreme and we celebrate works by diverse creators. As always, I am here with my co-host, Nikki. Say hi, Nikki. What's up, pop people? Hey, hey. Um, And today we have a very special guest with a book that Nikki and I read and absolutely loved, and we cannot wait to get into this. Um, And I I will throw it out there, too, that the main character has a name that I'm rather fond of as well. Um, So today (laughs) we are talking about the book Kill for Love by Laura Picklesimer. And here's a little bit about the book. The boys on the row are only after one thing, but Tiffany is on the hunt for something more. As a fifth-year sorority sister at a major university in Los Angeles, Tiffany is juggling a busy schedule of commitments that includes shopping, fitness, self-care, and socials. She is one of the most beautiful and popular young women on Greek Row. She's also one of the cleverest, though no one really cares about that. And yet, she chooses to strategically fail in order to avoid the real world. As her final year of college begins, Tiffany finds herself haunted by nightmares of fire and destruction, a post-grad life with nothing to offer her, and increasingly sadistic impulses. After a frat party hookup devolves into a bloody, fatal affair, Tiffany realizes something within her has finally awoken, the insatiable desire to kill. As Tiffany's bloodlust deepens and the bodies of attractive young men pile up, she must contend with mounting legal scrutiny, social media-fueled competing murders, and her growing relationship with Weston, who she's starting to believe could be the perfect boyfriend and her only shot at redemption. A female-driven modern-day American psycho, Kill for Love exposes toxic plasticity with dark comedy at a breakneck speed. And a little bit about our guest today. Laura Picklesimer's fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in the Kenyan Review, the Arkansas International, the Santa Ana River Review, and Goldman Review, among other publications. She was the grand prize winner of Anizagam Journal's 2018 Fiction Contest, judged by author Rachel Kong, and was a finalist for the Speculative Literature Foundation Diverse Worlds Grant. Kill for Love is Laura's debut novel, which I can't believe, Laura, on a side note. Incredible. Same. Uh, (laughs) The book was the winner of the Launchpad Prose Competition 2021 Top Book Prize and the Book Pipeline 2020 Grand Prize for Best Thriller Mystery. Laura, we are so incredibly excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. (laughs) Hello. Thank you for having me. We're just, oh, okay. Nikki, first impressions, spoiler-free first impressions of this book. 10 out of 10, 30 <laughs> chapters on this one. <laughs> I'm so excited. And I know this will come up a little later, but as a former sorority girl myself, the fact that this all takes place in the landscape of Greek row and the superficiality of it all and the fact that it's just one big satire, 
Um, I loved every minute of it. It was so fun. It was, you never knew it was around the corner, twists and turns. And it just, I loved it. I just, I can't believe this is your debut novel. You are clearly, you're so, so gifted. And so it is such a treat to see that you're, this is where you're starting. And Mm -hmm. I, I'm so excited to read what you have coming up next and after that and after that. Thank you. There's no greater compliment than hearing from a sorority member that they enjoyed the book and that it works and was authentic. (laughs) Not without the murder though, right? It was true to form. I mean, there are certain things that we won't reveal on the podcast, right, Nikki? Certain things. Yeah, Yeah, certain things, you know. I will say I was part of Sigma I, I guess I could say that it is a national chapter. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so there, there is that, and it's a smaller one too. So I appreciate that you uh, tied in some la- actual real chapters out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I'd love to hear how how women who belonged to one of those chapters feel about being included. But I, I would hold it in very high praise myself. So just my just my feeling on it thank you yeah (laughs) absolutely okay pod people uh y'all know the deal we go deep in a lot of these interviews so i'm just gonna say right up front that we are going to spoil the hell out of kill for love so please go and read the book come back for a really rich discussion because uh we are going to get into some spoilers as we talk through this book because Oh, man, there's so much, especially even at the end of this book that I am so excited to talk about. But before we get there, let's take it back a little bit and talk about how this book came to be. Um, Laura, in the acknowledgments for this book, we learned that you wrote the first draft during your MFA program at Cal State Long Beach. Um and I, I love the idea that you that you created this during your MFA program because I drew a little bit of a line to one of my other favorite novels, um, very strange and also very much centered on, you know, kind of like the collegiate experience, which is Mona Awad's Bunny, which is incredible. Um, and that was also the product of her graduate writing program. <laughs> uh, so... A question for you is, what is it about that environment that inspires you to dive into the darker experiences of academia? And where did the first kernel of inspiration for this particular story about Tiffany come from? Well, first off, I love Bunny and I love Mona Awad. Um, So good. One of my favorite authors. And I don't know if you've read Bruges, but just also (sighs) phenomenal. I haven't yet, but it is on like my immediate to like to read list. And I know like nothing about it. I have been avoiding everything because I just want to go in knowing absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's so good. It's bonkers. Uh, it's funny. That's all I'll say, but it's so uh, good. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> so the character of Tiffany, I started with the character before I even have the plot and the story. Um, She actually came about before I enrolled in my MFA program. I was taking writing workshops. I graduated with my bachelor's and I was taking workshops around LA and I was actually given an exercise to write in the voice of a memorable literary character. 
And so I had recently finished American Psycho for the first time. Perfect. I thought about what the voice of Patrick Bateman might sound like if it was channeled through a young woman living in LA. And so as I developed the character, I named her Tiffany. I figured out that she lived in a sorority. And so I developed what was like a one page uh, character sketch into a short story. It actually covers the first, goes into the first murder. So it's like the first couple chapters of, of what's now the book. Um, and then I realized there's just so much more to uncover. And so that was when I realized I had a novel. This is my debut novel. Um, not every debut novelist debut is their first book, but this was my first book that I'd ever written. So once I realized that I had a book in me, um, I knew I was ready to start an MFA. I had earned an English degree and uh, concentrated in creative writing at UCLA. Um, but I hadn't applied for an MFA because I just, I didn't have a book in me, whether it was a collection or a novel. And so, like I said, once I had Tiffany and realized I had to write her story, then I applied for an MFA. So I went to Cal State Long Beach. Um, and yeah, that's where I wrote almost all the book um, during my MFA program. It was my thesis. And then I kept writing. Um, and so all told, it took took about nine years from that first character sketch to to hear, to being published. I think that that says so much. Like you can really tell, I mean, Tiffany's voice is so strong and that character, like we really stay so close to her and we learn so much about her that it makes complete sense to me that it started with character, that it didn't start with like an idea and then you fit any of that in. It really starts and ends with her, right? (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And that's, that's how I do most of my writing. I'm really character driven. And so I spend a lot of time with my characters, developing them and figuring them out. And it's like, I just feel like if I can figure out my character, then the rest just unfolds pretty naturally. Yeah, that really came through to me too. And in fact, one of the first things I thought of while reading was Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho. I mean, the the savvy you know really desirable um central character you know who is unassuming to everyone else serial killer but spend five minutes in their minds i and i mean they're crazy you know (laughs) but it makes it so exciting because you get to see a side of them that no one else does see them act out being the typical normal person to everyone around them and you're sitting there going how do you not see this how do you not see your demise sort of on the precipice and um at the same time though she's a likable character she's a relatable character because a lot of the inner dialogue that we follow are i think things everyone would like to act out from time to time right and that was a central plot point of american psycho too was does he actually act this out or doesn't he here you get you know the the safety of sort of knowing or i guess the resolution of knowing yes these these things are actually happening and but at the same time it's also sort of a weird coming of age story of someone who's also dealing with a lot of inner demons a really rough childhood and this is in a weird way i guess her coping mechanism um Definitely and 
so it's it's a really I think that was Tiffany maybe you were alluding to some other inner struggle that you were having with the narrative but that was sort of mine was oh I can see how you know someone with so all this unresolved trauma and given like the right opportunity and the right victim someone who isn't like I don't know has has their own inner turmoil going on or just like doesn't have a whole lot of value to add and maybe there's some sexual assault predilections there it's like yeah I actually I don't think we're gonna miss them yeah yeah absolutely and like I we were talking we were chatting a little bit before this and I I had said something about like um because this book is very, very heavy on the satire in the same way that American Psycho definitely is, like you are poking and prodding at so many different aspects of society, the good, bad, the ugly, right? And I think that whenever I say like, because I said something about like struggling with the narrative a little bit and that it was very like provoking at times. And I think that that's just because there were so many things that were like highly relatable and that make you very uncomfortable that happen inside Tiffany's brain (laughs) and we're so close to her and we just, we learn about all of these things. And I think it kind of reveals a little bit about yourself as you read it too, like which good satire should do, right? Like, and sometimes it's just hyperbole. It goes so far (laughs) that it's laughable. And other times you go, oh yeah, no, people are the worst and people just think like that. I definitely think that's that's what satire allows for that just over the top exaggerated commentary it it can be both fun and terrifying and I had that experience even writing it and yeah that was definitely what drew me to American Psycho though Patrick Bateman was in so many ways just completely unrelatable but getting mm-hmm. into you know you felt like you just you had to inhabit that world you were stuck in that world so I did want that kind of similar feeling um but it is really cool to hear readers relate to Tiffany even though she is so relentlessly (laughs) unlikable and privileged and in so many ways but that's I think really the challenge with satire like striking that balance between just the completely outlandish and and having that kind of sharp that sharp lens while also just like giving in and, and finding ways though to, to humanize her because I did try to also humanize aspects of her. Like Nikki brought up, you know, the, the trauma in her history and unfolding and revealing some of that. You can kind of see where she got to this place. Um, even as she's just absolutely monstrous. I yeah. think you hit the nail on the head. There was, I, I think so often, especially with, characters like Patrick Bateman that are just pure evil, right? I mean, there's no, there's very little, if any, redeeming qualities to them. With Tiffany, there are, which I think adds to the, um, the difficult and challenging feelings you have as a reader for her is obviously, it's not right to murder, you know, what's a commandment, but... <laughs> it's a commandment, it's Nikki! <laughs> if you follow those things. Oh, no. Uh, but, but no, but I mean, in all seriousness, you're right. It does really humanize her and it maybe even like makes to the readers, like it makes her, some of her actions, like ex- at least explainable, if you know, not like excusable. I agree. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't want it to be a straight up revenge text, if that made sense. Like there's a lot of thrillers I've read where, you know, it's women on a rampage, which I'm in full support of. And I do enjoy mm-hmm. reading them, 
But I did want with the satire, especially to, to differentiate myself a little bit from that genre where like every man deserves to die and be on this hit list. Right. And kind of complicate that a little bit where um, Tiffany meets, you know, I mean, she meets a bunch of douches. Right. And she meets a bunch of spoiled privileged boys, but they don't necessarily all deserve to die. Right. I mean, there's, she, she is just this killer. And if you just kind of pass her on the wrong day or strike her, you know, that you're in for it. And so I thought that was a lot more, that was more similar to American Psycho and a lot more compelling to me to have this unrepentant protagonist who it's like in their nature, their instinct, and to not necessarily have every victim, you know, quote unquote, like had it coming. Um, that was that was really interesting to me too. And that was part of the kind of provoking, I feel like prodding that you mentioned, Tiffany, with the reader, you know, you can't always feel just perfectly at ease with what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think I love that you kind of subverted that trope a little bit and really made it about her right like because I feel like sometimes you you get kind of your classic thrillers or your revenge narratives where yes it's someone who is seeking revenge and taking it out and whatnot but there's a lot of emphasis on who they are exacting revenge against and this is really about her it has way less to do about like the people that she kills and way more to do about how she's feeling and why she's doing it and what she gets out of the experience. And like you said, I think it's, it's great because she's incredibly unpredictable because she meets so many people through this book and you're like, are they next? I don't know because you just, you just don't know what's going to set her off and what's going to, you know, transpire on the next page because it's all about her and her, instincts and proclivities and it has way less to do with her victims truly let's get into some of the the major plot points here so let's get into the story um one thing that really struck me while i was reading the first third of this book was how tiffany's relationship with food radically transforms as soon as she discovers and starts to lean into her desire for murder So she goes from, in the very beginning, having an extremely severe eating disorder that's, you know, designed to keep her the trimmest of the trim um, on campus. Um, And then she goes into kind of eating off-limits food after a kill and satisfying this very almost like primal urge. And then we see it almost transform into well, I'm eating to fuel my body so that I can be like this kind of athlete and be strong and subdue these men, right? So that I can get my kill on, essentially. (laughs) Um, Can you talk a little bit more about Tiffany's relationship to food and how that intertwines with murder for her? Definitely. Um, I think just so much of being a woman and a sorority member in Tiffany's world is about deprivation. That was kind of the theme of the opening chapter. She's depriving herself. She's putting on this mask. She's following, you know, kind of societal norms and standards, as you mentioned. She's saying she's satisfied and full when she's anything but. And so I would say deprivation and then hunger are the two kind of driving instincts that fuel the beginning. So that's like the whole opening of the book. And honestly, that was some of the the hardest stuff to write um you know from this lens it was really difficult to to write and so that's why it was so it was so much fun to get later in the book right um 
the facade kind of breaks through over the course of the book. And as you mentioned, it's linked to those murders, right? The first place that she starts to kind of crack is with her hunger and her refusal to follow the diet. So she commits her first murder and then just immediately that sparks this appetite, right? And so it's an appetite literally for men, but also for food. And she gives in to the hunger that she's been feeling for the whole course of the beginning of the book. And then we learn that like she's completely insatiable, right? So it goes from kind of transfers from just complete deprivation to giving in and like you want to support her, but then you realize, I mean, she's just absolutely insatiable and using her food as fuel I love how you say that because that was the part I really liked I loved when she puts on muscle and she starts to manifest like a real physical power that is kind of complementing how she's feeling and so those were some of the funnest scenes for me to write and it was really important for me to have her have that physical transformation um, and not just like an interior one and not just the killing bowl. So her relationship with food and exercise as well. I love that because especially like the idea of putting on muscle is almost like that idea of like taking up space too, um, you know, which is something that like can be very difficult as a woman navigating the world as well, because we're taught to be so like inward and to be small and to fold in on ourselves so much that like you really see Tiffany like expand in so many ways. Um because she's just like, oh, no, I'm going to put on muscle and I'm actually going to take up space and I'm going to become bigger and going to be able to do these things that I wasn't able to previously. And so there's this just like this idea of taking up space where I loved it. I was like I was just like cheering her on. I was like, get it, girl. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I also was thinking a lot about how, you know, she's she's doing this for herself. She's finally, she's finally making choices that are to meet her own needs and not the expectations of those around her. And, you know, she, she changes the way she even thinks about like relationships with men when we finally like do come to a romantic interlude. And um, I really enjoyed, even though like it was kind of a quick arc to get there to her, killing instincts and and start that off um the bat it was still like refreshing i think to see a woman who's working through like that Mm -hmm. internal struggle of i've been pleasing others like my whole life down to the cube of tooth tofu that i eat um (laughs) you know and now i'm gonna like buy myself a warehouse throw some gym equipment in there and you know, make myself this like iron woman almost. And, you know, so you do, you kind of, you want to cheer her on in that respect. Definitely. Yeah. There's, there's so much with gender norms, right. As she transforms and it's funny, like I had, she has different reactions. Like some of the sorority members are like, something's different about you or like, wow, you know, these feel that confidence and then you have figures like Malcolm who you know are just completely putting her like trying to put her down like oh yeah you you know you're taking up more space basically oh you put on some weight and Tiffany remarks like you know he doesn't notice anything that this is mostly muscle as well as fat and that you know I could take him down in an instant and so um it's definitely this rebellion against these standards that were placed on her. And like you said, just like with the murder, she's doing it for herself and no one else. Yeah, this, 
as we kind of touched on in the beginning, definitely takes us back to our college days. Uh, for those who haven't been listening since the beginning, Tip and I met in college. I had actually just rushed a sorority. And so Tip was in a weird way adjacent to my Greek life. And I was an I was an honorary member, although honestly, was- like I came over a lot for mac and cheese lunches more than anything else. <laughs> a few date dashes here and there, you know, honorary Absolutely. member a little bit. <laughs> always, always. Yes, it was it was nice to have friends outside of Greek life and in it. Um, and there some of them remain my closest friends uh, in addition to Tip. And so obviously there was so much about this that I mean, was on point i mean the date dashes and like the pseudo structured greek life of sororities versus fraternities really having carte blanche to misbehave and act out i always thought that that was so strange actually on the same street as my sorority house there was a fraternity house that I guess I won't say who it is because they might still have this room, <laughs> but it's right. It was right across from campus police and they had a soundproof party room, which of I course they did. Of course they did. Imagine leads to some really <laughs> scary, potentially scary Ooh, scenarios. For yeah. women. Um, I hope that I hope that it's never been used, uh, misused in that way. But, you know, going over to the and thinking that that was like really cool and like, Oh, we can never drink in my house. And, um, and also just like the, the incredible expectations that are placed on women in sororities versus men. Um, men were like always expected just to be drunk all the time, loud all night. Women had to adhere to a curfew. We had a house mom that, kept us in line over and although it was kind of just a mere formality um weren't allowed to have boys over uh upstairs definitely not you know and so of course this all made me wonder I know that you obviously got your MFA and uh went to school in California for your undergrad but did you ever spend time on Greek row Greek life how did you manage to get this so uh, accurate. So I did not join a sorority, but I liked what you said about being an honorary Greek member. I was definitely <laughs> one of those honorary members. Um, nice. And, yeah, <laughs> very familiar with the system. And Nikki, you just, you highlighted it all. I mean, that was, you. I couldn't have said it better myself about that dichotomy that I found so intriguing when I was going to college and what really propelled the setting, um, creating the setting, because I had the character of Tiffany and I was like, what kind of world, if we're thinking of American Psycho would like replicate this like Wall Street bro culture, like Colts Bard. And so I thought of the fraternity system, but then in doing that also it brings up sororities and all the, the things you mentioned. And I mean, there's no there's nowhere on campus life where that dichotomy and those gender roles are so delineated. And it's still, it's remarkable to me how decades, hundreds of years later, I mean, they're still implemented and so much has changed, especially across campuses and grown more progressive. And still, you know, the, the Greek system has that system where, yes, yeah, so there's still sorority moms and 
uh, curfews and rules, whereas um, the fraternities, you know, it, there's this freedom that, like, I'm totally going to admit I was drawn to when I started as an undergrad, you know, just the freedom to be absolutely disgusting <laughs> with something. I still <laughs> I still find a little appealing. And I think that really yeah. well to, to Tiffany, right? And mm -hmm. um, has this like social media curated, just perfect little world that she's miserable in. And so I do think there's this piece of the fraternity life where it's just, you know, there's like piss everywhere <laughs> and vomit and it's true. We'll clean it up next week type mentality. Um, and that is in a sense kind of liberating and what, you know, she, she has to get dirty, right. When down and dirty, when she starts murdering. Um, and so I, yeah, I think Tiffany finds that appealing and, and I also kind of found that appealing as well, but yeah, I was definitely writing um, from some experience in those two very 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 different worlds for sure yeah i i remember like one of the things you know in reflecting on this and being kind of an honorary member so going to you know some some greek events and then other things on campus too just the way that uh, the different feeling that you had when you stepped in like a sorority house right versus how you felt when you stepped into a frat <laughs> regardless oh, yeah. of the time of day right like obviously you know you're going to a frat party it's going to feel a certain way like you kind of expect that but if you ever set foot you know it could be like one o'clock in the afternoon and you would go into a fraternity house and it would feel so different than if you were in you know down the street at Nikki's sorority house um and yeah just like the different expectations the different feeling just the different vibe that you had there like it's down and dirty and kind of gritty and free versus like this very polished like bubble of expectation almost and it just like just the feeling of that was so so vastly different and I think that that's highlighted in 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 the book too for sure whenever we go to those parties and we see everything and I really loved, like, I'm a huge fan of feminine monstrosity. Um, it comes up a lot in my own work, and I love to read it. And <laughs> that's why I loved this Tiffany as, as well, um, because we do see her just, like, starting to get, like, down and dirty and subverting those expectations. And, you know, it's almost like Tiffany starts becoming a bit of a frat guy, too, in a way. Like, yeah. and you're kind of like... You, you you go with that freedom, girl. Like, yeah, absolutely. You get a little dirty. <laughs> she is a bit of a frat bro by the end, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Frat bro, like, with all of the niceties of a sorority house. <laughs> uh, yeah. Kind yeah. of the best of both worlds. A, a well-manicured frat house, I guess. <laughs> if there ever I love it. Such a thing. <laughs> right? I Someone don't know. I don't know if that exists, cold. but... <laughs> <laughs> okay let's let's talk about tiffany's kills a little bit uh here so there's a a real psychosexual edge to tiffany's killings and we see that a lot in american psycho as well um if you're familiar with that work uh both in the book and in the film there's definitely this psychosexual edge um and the same is true for tiffany and in the beginning uh, you know, when she first starts killing, if she isn't attracted to the men that she kills, she finds a really hard time doing it. Like she almost gets performance anxiety. She's like, am I going to get anything out of this? I'm not mm -hmm. sure unless I'm actually like 
attracted to this like hard body, which is a throwback to American Psycho. Um, that that phrase specifically, yeah. um, but it, but it's almost like she finds like this power and pleasure in destroying something beautiful, um, and also that's very much reflected on the cover of your book, which by the way I absolutely love, and it, and it caught the attention of my husband who is not a horror fan in any way shape or form. So, but he was just like, I really like that cover. He's super into <laughs> pop art, and he was just like, I really like that. I'm like, I know, right? But it's but it's perfect um and it just reflects this so well because it's just all of these like you know headless built torsos of frat boys essentially (laughs) in pink of course um can you talk a little bit about the relationship between uh sex and murder for tiffany yeah sure and thanks for the shout out for the cover um jaya nicely created the cover and it is just like equal pop equal parts pop art and then just like feminine fantasy and um the reversal of the of the male gaze right the the female gaze or just that reversal really was really important to the cover and I think speaks to to what you were talking about as far as she does kind of get this like performance anxiety right and she can only kill men who she's attracted to so I thought it was this interesting um interesting reversal of how she begins in the novel where everything like how she presents herself and you see her getting these texts from unknown numbers and from her dates and she's just pretending to be into it right but she's not really attracted to them or at least attracted to them in that way right just for straight up sex which she remarks is probably gonna be horrible and finish really quickly she wants it on her terms and like she hasn't really ever gotten it on her terms before and so I think that's where that link comes in and that psychosexual edge um where yeah she's able to like have it her way (laughs) basically um and so that kind of propels her and so in that way there were definitely similar strains to American Psycho but I did want to keep it consistent in that she really just she really just mostly kills men who she she's attracted to and so it kind of sets up a rule where you know we know she's not going to just go for her sorority sisters and kill them, even though, you know, she despises some of them. Um, And so I thought that was an interesting kind of uh, quirk about, about her and an interesting where there's so few rules in Tiffany's world that was kind of nice to set up one that she really, really can't get into the murdering unless she feels it right. Unless she feels an attraction in in the guy she's with. Um, So yeah, that was, that was kind of the link for me. Yeah, I, I definitely got a little bit of like, a you know, we, we get this idea that Tiffany is very stuck and she's kind of bored, right? Like maybe she's mm-hmm. hit a bit of like her apex, like she is, you know, this beautiful woman, um, you know, in sorority life, like clearly she's well off, you know, she's living the dream in LA, she's living that plastic life and it's gotten boring. Like she's gotten to the edge of, you know, it, there's nothing else for me here really, um but then this just takes it just it ratches it up just a little bit more and she's like oh well that's a new experience (laughs) and and that just awakens but I love that it's also just connected to kind of like her sexual experiences too because it's the same thing where she's just like "Eh, I'm dissatisfied like this is not going to meet any sort of expectation for me um but you know add a little blood and maybe it's maybe it's interesting now yeah, she's definitely having an awakening. I like that word. Um, and where we see her at the very beginning of the book. Yeah, she's just, 
she's completely bored, unfulfilled. In her words, she says she thinks she might be having an existential crisis. Um, so there is kind of this sexual <laughs> awakening, a sexual awakening that takes the form of, of like pure murder. Mm-hmm. But over time, she does somewhat like almost accept that she is more than just this like beautiful facade and she wants more for herself not just the killing but she wants it all like she wants kind of the prince charming in a way right and it almost seems like up until this point treading on the a thread that we've been sort of touching this this whole time um she is you know role reversal coming into her own um coming of age in a way that of her emotional maturity and so she starts off really like wanting sex for salt for validation she moves into now you know kind of associating dominance over good-looking guys and it's almost like she's now falling starting to fall somewhere in the middle and wrestling with with what that looks like and so that ends up being at least initially Weston and it's this beautiful man it's like he kind of almost reminded me of the Christian Grey type um <laughs> oh like minus <laughs> some of the problematic sexual uh, history that he yeah, has I, I mean Weston is still problematic just in different ways He's but yes <laughs> But at least, you know, initially we have them, uh, he, he's the, like the nice hot guy that you wonder, how is he still single, right? And he's somewhat of an equal to her in terms of he checks off all of the boxes. He's rich. He's smart. He's on the quieter side. Um, she can feel, he challenges her. Um but, you know, still you wonder, like, how does this fit into her rules and how she's wrestling with having a romantic interest in the backdrop of fulfilling her, her serial killing um, wet dreams, so to speak. So what is it about Weston you think that <laughs> kind of keeps him safe from her knife, at least in the beginning? That's a good question. It was important for me when I started drafting the story after I had Tiffany for her to have a partner. Um, and that was kind of that American psycho influence that Patrick Bateman has a girlfriend through all of it. And you never, at least I never feared for the girlfriend throughout. And it's kind mm -hmm. of like you have to go back and unpack, but you just, I think it's because it's so true to life. I don't actually read a lot and watch a lot of true crime, but it is very common for these, especially male serial killers to have girlfriends and wives throughout all of it who are just completely unaware of what he's doing on the weekends and at night. Um, and so that aspect of it, I knew I wanted to kind of replicate with Tiffany. So even as she's attracted to men and she's killing men, many of whom look like Weston are attractive. Um, I wanted to keep him safe, at least at the beginning and have her pursue a relationship. So I think at first, it's just when they meet like the first day, it's his complete disinterest that actually attracts her to him. Um, yeah, he's not really um, drooling over her like other men or trying the typical moves. Um, and whether or not it's just because he really it maybe has stressful day and he's just his mind is other places or whether that's a strategic move on his part, I kind of leave 
open. Um, so that's what first pulls her in. And then it's what you mentioned, Nikki, like he checks all the boxes, which of course is the worst reason to pursue someone. Um, but you know, he has it all. He's perfect on paper. He has the looks, the pedigree, education. He's got the sweet condo on Wilshire. He's got a good job. Um, and so she's still at that point viewing herself from the lens of like what everyone else is thinking and what she thinks she should be pursuing. And part of that is she reveals, you know, she's never been in a relationship before, even though she's dated around, she's been to so many frat parties, she's never had a boyfriend. And so I wanted to kind of show that, that like that uncertainty we've all been there when we're in our first relationship and we're like, is this normal? Like, how should we act? And so there is almost like a clumsy element of it that like was a little endearing to me to write in a character who's so jaded in other ways and so kind of world weary. Um, she's doing it all for the first time with Weston. And so she really desperately does want it to work with him, even as we can see, like, yeah, he has his own problematic aspects and um, he's not a monster at all. And that was also really mm -hmm. important may not be some monster or be you know also a killer um but yeah she's trying to have a go at it and um obviously it all just disastrously <laughs> falls apart by the end yes it does i i think that he enters tiffany's story at like the perfect time though because she has started killing she started coming into her own but like you were saying there you know old habits die hard right mm -hmm. so the idea of, okay, well, yeah, I'm doing these killings and these things that are very fulfilling for me, but also there's this beautiful man and he should absolutely be on my arm and he's interesting. And so I'm kind of like, okay, well, yeah, I, I should pursue that, right? Like, I'm not going to kill this one because I think that he might be at my level and maybe I could give this a go, but I still have this other itch that I still need to scratch too. And she's figuring so much stuff out. Like, it's just... it it's the perfect like relationship for her to have at that time as she's again, like Nikki actually mentioned that this is almost like a coming of age story in a, in a strange way. Right. Or like a transformation story, a, mm -hmm. a coming into your own sort of story. And he's definitely a part of that for better or worse, obviously worse at the end y'all worse. At the end. Um, whoo. Because, man, I did not see all of that coming at the end with him. Goodness gracious. Um, but it was but it was damn perfect. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's 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 great. But it also keeps like the narrative on its toes, too, because she's battling with this other thing that she's doesn't really know a whole lot about. So she's, you know, wielding a knife and really good at that. But kind of shit at relationships. <laughs> kind of fun to watch that's definitely her weakness i think her main weakness in the story not good with relationships <laughs> really any kind of relationship i like yeah the whole time you, you mentioned how like unlikable she was and what what was also very accurate and on point about living in a sorority is you know you i guess has some sort of a kinship with your class but there's, you know, three other classes that are involved at any one time in a sorority. Usually you're not like a fifth year senior in, in the Greek life anymore. Uh, this Tiffany is, which I think is also makes her somewhat of like a, a god, you know, like a literal Greek god in a way of like this person who has so much clout and so much experience and also seniority 
that she can kind of behave any way she fucking wants because she's earned it. And she treats like everyone, especially her little Emily, which I'm like still confused how Emily <laughs> and like was chosen. But I also like love that she was because she's like just this unassuming, really stumbling through like her first couple years of college and learning from Tiffany, who could be like the couldn't have a worse mentor. Seriously. <laughs> And I, I like, it was so funny because I, that's maybe one of the reasons I resonated with Tiffany was there were so many girls in my sorority. I despised so many, (laughs) like, and I, I mean, I, I'm sure I, I would confide in Tiffany about this too, but like girls, I had to take home from a date dash because I was in leadership and I had, you know, responsibility and I had to leave my like hottest date ever at the date dash and just like (laughs) but these things that you wrestle with it's almost like too much responsibility for young women in Mm -hmm. this setup that are really you're right supposed to have freedoms and supposed to be exploring who they really are you can't really do that in a sorority setting like and it's almost like you you're damned if you do damned if you don't because while it's like seen as this prestigious you know uh role on campus like you get there and it's like oh grass is always greener now you're you're literally contractually stuck right and I like so the impression of like boredom almost like really gets to me as like maybe the root cause of or one of the root causes of her serial killing like because you get there and what else is there you you're rich she has all the money in the world to spend who cares like and like what's the next thing and I almost feel like that's also undoubtedly characteristic of like West LA like residents in general is like she's becoming just part of the LA facade and like what separates her from everyone else well she kills like and um (laughs) I just love how that dovetailed in because like I I, I felt a lot of the same thing she does in like, how does her sorority even like her? Like, I thought, I thought there would be like a, a, a huge, I don't know, melee of like undergrads going after her eventually because she's just a shit, like human being to them. And you, I, I you would think so. Of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there was one moment where I think it clicked for me and I'm so excited that we get a chance to talk about this actually. And that this has come up because when Emily's grandmother, you know, actually passes away and leaves her, um, they're all talking about like, oh, well, what can we do for her? Like, what should we do for Emily? And, you know, they're, they're trying to do something nice. And Tiffany is like, oh, her clothes are shit. Like, let's give her a makeover. And someone's like, that's a really good idea. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just like, well, that explains it. Like, it, as much as we think that Tiffany is so terrible in, like, all of these things, you see a little bit of that reinforced with some of her sisters, too. So you're kind of like, some of that is just that environment. So she's probably not as different from some of her sisters as we might like to assume, <laughs> potentially. But, like, that moment, I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> And I was, I was laughing and cringing at the same time. <laughs> there are some moments, too, where um, 
yeah, she's just act. Tiffany is just acting so abysmally awful. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to have to, you know, get them a Sephora collection or so, you know, so she's kind of <laughs> yeah. way out of it. And then we see in the next scene, she's given, you know, Amy or whoever, uh, one of her sorority sisters, like $500 worth of makeup. And sure enough, yep. you know, Amy's like satisfied. Okay, I'll forgive you. Um, so yeah, it is, it is commentary both on, on Tiffany as well as some of the people she surrounds herself with. Totally. And I think that's like what it gets back to, the you know objectivity the superficiality of greek life of i think college life just in general and like not having that emotional the eq um to know that like life the reality of life is different than what you might see in like the microcosm of a sorority right or or any social group maybe that you find in college but i think you're completely right it goes right back to the clout that she has earned as a fifth year and, you know, put her in any other, put her in an office setting, which of course we know she would never be in, but let's just, for the sake of argument, put her in any other really like setting of, of, of a life stage. And it's like, she just wouldn't thrive. And at the same time though, it's like, I can't really see her as a housewife. You know, I can't see her in the Kris Jenner position either. So and I uh, wondered, like, what, what, what as, a, as, a, as a thought experiment, Laura, like, what do you think she would be doing, like, as a, a oh career gosh. woman? <laughs> where, where would she fit? Like, where the heck would she wind up? Well, that's an interesting question because huh. I have been approached about sequels and oh. I've been outlining something. And let's just say if I started writing something, I would want to accelerate the time and mm-hmm. jump forward a bit and basically answer that very question like Mm. where where could she be and what what type of chaos would be ensuing if she was somewhere in her 30s like where could she actually fit in oh my god I think that's part of the problem I mean she's still having this issue this is the issue at the very beginning of the novel she doesn't really fit in anywhere um and she needs I totally agree with you Nikki too I think we'd have fewer serial killers if we had more like hobbies and jobs for people who are just bored and don't have anything to do all day and night um she needs like some sort of fulfillment and murder is the closest thing she can find this is why positive outlets are so important (laughs) (laughs) go take a pottery class (laughs) y'all i don't know what but something (laughs) that's actually i love this i love this game we play from time to time of who would you cast? Like who, considering you've been approached oh. about a sequel, you're maybe a little forward thinking. Do you have, would you have like someone in mind to play any of the characters who Oof. you dreamed up? I'd love That's to hear if you have any, do you have any ideas? Oh man. Oh, you know I who do. I kind of, okay, go ahead, Tip. No, I got, I got to hear yours. What are they? Is it, um, ah, I'm spacing on her name. So I'm making sure that it's the right person. Oh yeah, Sydney Sweeney <gasps> is your Tiffany for Perfection. sure. Like, I mean, we've seen some of it. If 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 anyone watches Euphoria, um, I think that she's got. I mean, she's got those chops, and she, I, man, I'd love to see her just like get dirty and do like this whole roller coaster ride because I think that she could do all of it. And she's just like unassuming. She's just like beautiful and like, oh yeah, yeah. No, I could definitely Sydney Sweeney. 
I could see that a lot. People have told me um, Jacob Elordi for Weston, oh. which I can also oh. see. Yep. Yeah. Duh. I mean, which that could totally him. work. Definitely. <laughs> Woo! Right. <laughs> yes. He looks good in a suit, like a hundred percent. He looks good in anything. Let's just be honest. Or nothing. I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> I think I think those are really good castings, though. Yeah, those those two. Oof. And we already know they have chemistry, so. Oh right, yeah. This is I'd true. I'd love to see them reappear together in something else. Oh my gosh, that would be wild. <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. Okay, well, we're dreaming. We're dreaming. We're bringing this into fruition. Manifesting. Oh, 100%. I want. I- I, I do think that this would translate in such an incredible way into film too. Like, I think it could be super fun. Um, it was made for a two and, for and, and just bonkers film. too. Like, cause it, cause it gets real bonkers. <laughs> I think it just, I love it. Um, descends into madness very much. So, uh, which actually leads me nicely into <laughs> next question that I have for you. Um, there's a bit of a, a secondary plot line in the novel that I found really fascinating and I had no idea where it was going or what it was actually going to do when it was first introduced in the beginning. Um, around the same time that Tiffany starts killing, there's another string of murders close to campus, which leads us to believe perhaps there's another killer on the loose. Um But then as the book progresses, it turns into just this overwhelming presence of like, random booming violence it seems like there's always something else happening which is good because it's a foil for tiffany like it kind of distracts from what from what she's doing right she's like oh well i wasn't involved in that one like okay their attention is diverted over here cool like i'm in the clear but there's just like this mounting violence that happens throughout the book um and then toward the end it really gets into almost this like steep decline of like civilization and humanity again it gets really kind of bonkers and actually very apocalyptic toward the end with you know california wildfires and Mm. there's evacuations um which i know is just a part of life for sure here in california um but at the same time like it's it's that destruction that tiffany was dreaming about in the beginning and it has this real edge to well is the world just like burning and coming down around her while she's also, you know, like discovering this about herself. Um, And was that, so I have to ask, was that always kind of like this through line and theme of the book or is that something that you discovered and developed in the process of writing kill for love? I always envision that ending from the very beginning. For me, I I start with character, but before I can really commit to a longer piece of fiction, I have, I have to know how it ends. Mm. I don't outline, but like, I have to know how it ends because that's what I just, I work towards. So I was always working toward an end of just complete, like you said, apocalyptic violence and the city going up in flames and the wildfires and everything just kind of all coalescing around her as kind of this physical manifestation of what she's produced and she has that she has those dreams which you know you can interpret in different ways is it foreshadowing simple foreshadowing or is she actually kind of manifesting this um and for me that was kind of where the commentary comes in like it is people like tiffany that 
cause this destruction and wreak mm-hmm. you know, all this havoc. And so it is this, it's satire. So it's this over the top manifestation of just all the ways that people like her are kind of <laughs> messing things up in the city. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really interesting. Um, the moment, there's a moment where everything starts really accelerating, as you mentioned, Tiffany, and that's when um, there start to be shootings and also when the campus closes. And that was, I wanted that to be a signal point. Like once the campus closes, we no longer have that regimented system. We no longer have rules and it's just like no holds barred. Like anything can happen the moment that the campus shuts down um, and everyone's mm-hmm. And Tiffany makes that decision, like, I'm going to stay, I belong here, like, I'm going to embrace this chaos. And so yeah, that's a really pivotal point in the book and um, something I was writing toward the entire time. Oh, I love it. It's like she finally gets like that taste of freedom, but it's while everything is like burning around her. Oh, man, I just I, I love I love that journey for her. Well, and I think that like, you know, we, it's timely in a way because we just had like a hundred year storm on Monday, like at least in San Diego mm-hmm. we did. Um, and I, I saw this a year ago too. We had another storm and like the whole seawall was breached and this mm-hmm. is kind of like an, uh, an escalation of what we're seeing weather wise and, so I think sometimes what's really scary about apocalyptic novels or pieces that take place in Southern California is like this sort of thing is very plausible, like maybe not to the extent that's theatrical, but at least in terms of the realm of possibility. And sometimes I think those natural elements are a separate character than like the individuals that we follow. And it just compiles onto this feeling of, of existential dread and loss of control, you know, where you feel like you may, you thought you had it, you know, you thought you had it like all figured out. And so I like sort of the interplay of all of it that, you know, it's not just her internal dialogue and these tendencies, but now it's sort of bled over into, you know, the environment around her. And now it, now it includes everyone in her life, not just those that she selects to be part of her plot line, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, now everyone's sort of involved and it, it ups the, it ups the stakes. Yeah, and as I think Tiffany mentioned, she's such a product of LA, particularly West LA. I thought it fitting that it's like this the city kind of becomes its own character that's reflected of Tiffany. And so the city also reflects that journey that she's going on through the course of the novel. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the doubling of it too, because when you get to the end there, you're kind of like, are we still in satire land? Or is this like fully plausible? Because you know, I mean, again, like the wildfires, you know, where again, like climate change, we're talking about some of these storms and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like we see some of that, like fully encroaching. We see some of like the devolution of, of humanity and stuff with the news every day. And like the the interesting thing when I got to the end of that, I was kind of like, okay, wait, is this apocalypse or is this just like 
LA falling a little bit because it that could happen. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's really teetering on that edge. And I think it's very much open to interpretation of like how much of that really turns into an apocalypse like landscape and how much of that is just has been like in step with Tiffany's transformation too of just like how the city has just suddenly gone like, well, here's the tipping point and now we all descend. Mm-hmm. I've gotten that question and honestly, I don't even fully, well, I think I know the answer, but I've gotten that question as far as like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, so like did LA just die and now it's apocalypse? I've <laughs> also gotten other people who are like, no, nah, like in two weeks, you know, everyone, the rich people. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. happening, right? Like it just, yeah. Like, week blip where it was like yeah things were really out of control for a little while and then you know we got it yeah. back together then the rich people came back and sorted it right out. oh totally totally I, I feel like it could really go either way and I actually don't want to know the answer to that question either I think it's actually more fun leaving that particular aspect of it up to you know interpretation um maybe we'll learn a little bit more if you have a sequel (laughs) we'll see right um where tiffany is based uh but uh yeah I, i i loved that though because you really don't have like a clear answer but you don't need one really um it's just oh it's great um well i mean the fact that that since LA is is very much alive and well, and since you're an Angelino, like what are your favorite things about living in LA? If maybe what are some of your least favorite things about about being an Angelino? Sure, yeah i I've been in Los Angeles since 2005. Um, I'm born and raised in Southern California, so I think the thing. My favorite thing about LA would definitely be the neighborhoods. Like every neighborhood has its own distinctive world. And I think it's really hard for visitors, especially if you just spend like a couple days or even just a week in LA and then go back. It's hard to grasp just everything, like the culture, the food. And and like I said, just the different worlds that you can inhabit um, and that there is to offer, you know, and it's hard to see it all in just one trip in part because it can take like several hours just to cross (laughs) is verging into my least favorite parts of the yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is just, there really truly is so much to see. Um, but I think years ago, I would have said my least favorite thing, you know, the basic answer is traffic. Um, now I would say it's just, it's unfortunately, I mean, it's definitely the inequality and just the exponentially growing lack of affordability and just lack of housing. Um, yeah, it's a depressing answer, but I think that's the biggest challenge confronting the city and it's severe and it doesn't seem to be getting any better so amen to that in fact that's a conversation I have really I I used to work with a homeless advocacy nonprofit myself and in San Diego um, you know we're not um, outdone by many cities in terms of our population of homeless and certain and I think LA is actually six times larger at least mm-hmm. than ours. And I, I actually clocked this while reading Kill for Love because I found it so accurate that the NIMBYs of West Hollywood were blaming the homeless for yes. the killings in the beginning. And I'm like, dude, that is like something that is just beyond enraging to me because I'm thinking to myself, there's no way that sororities and fraternities would ever allow 
um, unhoused people to just waltz in. So I'm like, you're just simply blaming an entire mm-hmm. group of, of disadvantaged people, you know, who have little to nothing and are defenseless and vulnerable. And of course, you're going to blame the most defenseless and vulnerable people for your own shortcomings, for maybe like, you know, security issues or just like any crazy person on the loose. And no, we have to default to the, you know, most marginalized. And um, so I thought that that was a really smart uh, layer to Kill for Love because it does speak to the prominence of social justice in West LA and how it's just completely overlooked. And yet these are also the people that have the most power to do something about it, to find solutions. And they're the ones just honestly causing all of the problems. And it's, uh, it's, it was a great way, I think, of examining a very, very complicated issue. Yeah, the, the the scapegoating is on point. And I think it's mm-hmm. a lot easier to just like blame that sort of thing and point that finger as opposed to actually addressing some of those issues, right? So um, again, the other, the other incredible thing that satire can do is just exploring all of those types of issues and really bringing them to the forefront and going, yeah, yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely a problem. Okay, one final comment from me before uh, before we get into your reading. Um, and I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but um, I really, really love the transformation that Tiffany goes on throughout this book, like both physically, mentally, emotionally, like she just completely changes from this image obsessed LA 20 something to something really monstrous and wounded and powerful. And in those final moments, she actually very much reminds me of a final girl, but a final girl who will fuck you up in a really <laughs> bad way. Um, <laughs> and as a as a huge fan of like the unlikable female character and feminine monstrosity, I just I was like clapping at the end. I was like, oh, you went there. I love it so much. Like it's so gritty and dirty and gross and wonderful. So uh, so thank you for that. Delicious. Thank you. Yeah, yes. she is sort of like a final girl, which is, it's funny mm-hmm. you bring that up because there are so many, it's a whole genre of horror movies set in sorority houses, but what's yes. always mm-hmm. a murderer on the loose killing all the sorority members. So she's like a final girl of her own making, right? She's She doesn't have anyone murdering her. She's the murderer. So I like that comparison. Oh, oh I love that so much. Okay, pod people, it's time for a treat. We have talked a whole lot about this absolutely fantastic novel, and Laura has agreed to um, give us a little bit of a reading. So uh, take it away, Laura, whenever you are ready. Okay, this is the second chapter of the book, so I will not give any other information. I'll just uh, start. On Tuesday... I missed a morning fitness class at Elite Elegance, a Beverly Hills workout studio that combined belly dancing, yoga, and trapeze work performed with an aerial hammock. Instead, I had to settle for a standard Spinlati session all the way over on Fairfax, the type of simplified, modifications-heavy class that attracted still-tubby new moms in the over-40 set. Out shopping, the new outfit I wanted for the black and white party on Thursday failed to materialize, and I returned to my Mercedes with just a pair of Louboutin heels and a Prada clutch. 
I felt dejected driving back into Westwood with only a couple accessories. I need you to record me, I told Emily when I returned to my room. Maybe playing back my figure, watching the likes stack up would brighten my difficult day. Make it look spontaneous, I instructed her as I pivoted and blew a kiss. Emily's appreciative gaze would help soothe my nerves. The assurances mothers gave their daughters that those blondes in the magazines had been photoshopped into impossible sizes, or that Barbies couldn't anatomically exist because women couldn't support that hip-to-waist ratio, those were lies. I could prove it. I paired the Louboutins with a white strapless cocktail dress embellished in black. It was a month old that I hadn't worn it in public yet. I hoped that Emily's hungry gaze over my curves would be enough to boost my spirits, get me excited for another weekend of the typical drinking and slutting. You look amazing, Emily said, handing back my iPhone. I'd post the video across three platforms and get at least a few thousand views in the next half hour. I grabbed the white clutch and held it against my outfit. I'm going to wear this combination to the party. What do you think? That'll be perfect. Who are you going with, Emily asked. Tristan. Tiffany and Tristan, that's cute. Sure, I said. Other than being about 95% certain I had slept with him once during freshman orientation, I didn't know much about the dude. I didn't bother asking Emily about her date. She wouldn't be going. The prude didn't even drink. I had picked up a bakery item on my way home, a donut-type pastry with an explosion of confetti and pastel frosting. I untied the twine around the box and slid it open, careful not to disrupt the decorative collage inside. After I'd taken it to the spot in the hall with the best natural light, I shot a dozen photos from different angles and then smashed the thing in the trash. I went to the kitchen and grilled up some soy blocks, cutting them into tiny fourths and counting to ten between each bite. I looked at my watch. It was only 4 p.m. In the common room, Mandy and Amy were sorting through a pile of fashion and style magazines. The sorority had a mail subscription to all major publications that had never been canceled over the decades. I usually join them at the beginning of each month. We like to pour through the magazines and rip out advertisements for must-have products or fashion items, stopping occasionally if an intriguing title like 25 naughty uses for a Q-tip caught our eye. We'd wait until we accumulated a fair number of ads and then order everything on our iPhones, sending a customized tally of our transactions to one another. Amy looked up from her Cosmo. Did you know that 57% of 5,000 men pulled would rather undergo brain surgery than admit to anal penetration during foreplay? Not Dan, said Mandy. He loves it. I grabbed an issue of Allure and flipped through it. I had at least 10 products from every major designer listed in the thing. I felt a sudden weightlessness, like when you're slipping off to sleep, only to be jolted awake by the certainty that you're free-falling, that nothing around you is real. I realized that I'd be sitting on the couch again next month when the winter issues were mailed, and I'd have every single item in those magazines, too. And I'd still have time left over because a two-hour workout and a four-store shopping spree weren't enough to fill up an entire day. My hunger was back, and I wouldn't eat again for hours. My phone vibrated, a text from an unknown number, this time a 323 area code. I opened it, and a curved cock filled the frame of my screen. I threw my phone down and felt for my throat, finding the pearl drop necklace I'd worn every day since I was 17. My life coach called it my force center and encouraged me to touch it and count backward with slow, steady breaths any time I felt alone or anxious. I usually didn't need to be calmed. I liked being alone, and I was rarely anxious. I felt numb most days, unsurprised, bored. Today, though, was different. 
I resisted the urge to put the necklace in my mouth and feel the smooth pearl against my tongue. When I returned to my room, Emily was eating from a tray of celery and carrots. She smiled and held it out, proud of herself. Nice try, I told her, but that ranch dressing contains more saturated fat than a cheeseburger. I grabbed a pile of celery sticks and fell back on my bed. I began snapping them in two. Have you ever had an existential crisis, I asked her. Would all a middle school count? No, being awkward and unpopular isn't what I'm talking about. Do you ever feel like you're not acting like your true self? No. I mean, is there more you wish you were doing than just living at the sorority house, I asked. Of course. I've always wanted to visit Cambodia, and I dream all the time about finishing med school, maybe starting my own clinic. What would happen when I was forced to finally graduate? I'd live alone, that was for sure. No more roommates. As relieved as I would be to no longer sync my menstrual cycles with a dozen other girls, I wondered what I'd do with my time every day. People got jobs, I supposed, but wage earning wasn't exactly my vibe. Seriously, that's it, I said. Well, what do you want, Emily asked. I didn't have an answer. The soy blocks had failed to fill me and I was already feeling the familiar pangs of hunger again. I scrolled through my phone, past the hearts and likes and confirmation emails from the day's purchases. I looked through my photo library of sunsets and tiki drinks, uneaten buffet feasts, hollowed stomachs, that perfect triangle of emptiness between my inner thighs and the sky. I stroked the soft leather of the Prada purse I had bought that day and thought about the carcass it had been peeled from. I want everything. Such a good introduction to, uh, to Tiffany in the beginning. And um, it has so much resonance hearing it again now after we've talked about all of these themes with like hunger and, um, you know, the carcass of the oh. of the bag. Like, oh, man, those are. Yeah, I, I love it. And I also realized during this that we didn't talk about her necklace at all or her dad or her uh, uh, all the all the goodies that she keeps. Um, no. But we will leave those yes. for our pod people to discover. <laughs> this book <laughs> there's so much trinkets. yeah yes little little trinkets for you all to discover <laughs> that's why these are so much fun because we know we're not going to cover absolutely anything but we hope that it is just enough for our listeners to go snag a copy of kill for love wherever you can find it online yeah absolutely and i mean we're right before february and right before, you know, Valentine's time. So, you know, Kill for Love is kind of mm -hmm. a great uh, a great read for that time. Maybe a gift for that someone special in your life. Um, go, go pick it up and have an absolutely bonkers ride with Tiffany. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for being on and for discussing the book. Um, for our, uh, our listeners, um, do you have any projects that you want to plug or anything that you have coming up? And um, where can folks stay up to date on what's next for you? You can follow the book at Instagram at Kill for Love the Book. I'm also on Instagram at Laura Greenpickle. Uh, you can reach out to me directly through my website. That's storywellproductions.com. And that will have updates of everything that's going on, future events, and maybe even future sequels. Fantastic. We will drop um, links to some of those in the show notes. Uh, so go follow, go find, go follow the book. I'm, I didn't realize that that existed and I'm about to go um, stock the Instagram account for the book. Um, so that's going to be fun. <laughs> Fingers crossed for the sequel. <laughs> 
too. <laughs> yes. So. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again, Laura. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on um, and to, and to read this book. Oh, thanks Tiffany and Nikki. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us and until, until next, time, next time, stay spooky pod people. Oh. <laughs>